guys. Everybody doing okay? Yeah, it's so cool. I was telling uh, TJ when I got here for the first, the earlier service here at this campus, I was blinded. I was like, I can't see anybody. It's really weird. And, um, but by the time my eyes adjust, I start to see like there's a head right there. And I think there's a head right there. I don't know what you look like, but there's a head. So um, if I feel a little like I'm not paying attention to who you are, it's just because you just look like blank faces and heads. So um, anyway, I'm really glad to be here. Anybody know where Worcester, Massachusetts is? Okay, nobody. Awesome. Thank you, Jesus. Um, so Worcester is about an hour, almost an hour west of Boston. Uh, but I'm originally from Kansas City. I'm a Midwestern guy. Anybody from the Midwest? Okay, hallelujah. There's people that I know. Because um, in the Midwest, everybody knows everybody. So, um, but my wife and I have lived up there for 24 years and uh, been married for 24 years. And so we, I call myself a New Englander now, but I'm originally from Kansas City. And, uh, and I just, I, I want to say something before we get started today. Um, so as a pastor for 10 years, we planted Lifesong in 2006, and um, you know, pa- being a senior pastor for 10 years in, in ministry before that, I get a chance to have a lot of conversations with pastors, um, coaching some guys, and you know, whatever, just I- engaging around the challenges and the joys of ministry. And being a pastor is hard. It's not necessarily any harder than being a you know, vice president of a company or building your own plumbing supply house, but it's got some challenges to it. And uh, what often happens is pastors have a difficult opportunity being able to navigate some of the challenges of ministry because who am I gonna tell that to? This person whose face I can't see on the third row? Like, uh, who am I gonna tell that to? I can't tell it to them because I pastor them. And so I can't talk about some of the problems and challenges of ministry to the people that I pastor. So when pastors get together, sometimes we'll talk about difficulties and challenges. And I, I just can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with pastors where they say things like, you know, this challenge is going on and if there's this one couple, I'm just praying God will lead them to another church. And you're like, that's awesome. And, um, but it's real. Like they're just, it's real. There are challenges in ministry and sometimes those challenges bubble out of pastor's mouths about even people in their church. And I, the reason I tell you that story is because um, I've been connected to, to TJ and Shayla for quite a while. And as he mentioned, and um, never in the time that I've been connected to them, seven, eight years, nine years, have I ever heard them say anything about their church other than how incredible the people in it are. And so I just want to tell you that they brag about you. And they talk about how incredible you are and the way you serve and the way you love Jesus and the way you're growing, the way you evangelize, the way you tell people about God, the way you live your faith and your community. And uh, they brag about you. And it's uncommon to not hear them ever, right? I'm one, of the, I'm one of his overseers. Like if there was ever anybody he could say, these people suck, it would be me. And uh, he never does. He, he talks about challenges, right? Going through this building journey and th- there's challenges there and going through stuff with the high school, there's challenges there and there's theater challenges, there's portable church. Like challenges are real, but when they talk about them, they never, they just never tell me there's this person on the third row or this couple that has been here for five years and we're just waiting for God to take them elsewhere. Like I never hear that stuff. And so I just want you to know how much your pastor loves you. And uh, will you do me a favor and give Pastor TJ and Shayla a big hand? Because they're, uh, they're awesome. And uh, you, I know you know you're blessed, but I'm just telling you, you're blessed. So um, it's, it's a real honor and privilege to be down here with you. Um, this is the fourth service, so Pastor TJ told me I can talk as long as I want. Uh, there's no limit. I don't have to get back to anything else, so you need to buckle up because um, we may be here a while. Um, at, just like we may be here a while. 
Uh, I've decided we may just continue through John 6 right on through John 9 or 10. Just keep on going. So, um, so here's the deal. How many of you know, like, you're familiar with the disciples? Everybody say, I'm familiar. Yes, you're familiar. You, get, you know who they are? Okay. Anybody think they can name them all? Okay, I can't either, so we're in good company. And uh, so we're not gonna try and do that, but we are gonna look at a story about one of the disciples in particular because as TJ was telling me about where your church is, where you're going, what you're doing. Uh, by the way, got to go see this incredible piece of land over in Parkland. How awesome is that? Is that crazy cool? Um, so I'm excited about that. But So he was telling me about all this, the journey you're on, this vision that God's you know, birthed in you. But he was telling me about it a few weeks ago. And this story and this encounter between Philip and Jesus um, in John chapter six kind of popped into my, my head about where you are and where you're going and the part you play. And part of the reason for that is I think our scope on the part we play and really the miraculous things of God can get lost. And so I wanna talk to you about it. If you, if you have your Bible, open it to John chapter six. I'm gonna read it to you out of the New Living Translation um, off my phone. Uh, so turn to John chapter six, and then I uh, wanna make sure you grab something to write on. If you don't have something to write on, a worship guide or something, make sure you get one. I tell people in our church, if you don't have something to write on, scoot over next to somebody, write on their arm and take a picture so you can save it for later because you need to take some notes. Um, I just think it's an important practice, so plan to do that. Here's the first thing I want you to write down, and then we're gonna, we're gonna kind of set up this story in John chapter six. But here's your big idea. Miracles aren't reserved for the monstrous. Um, there is a problem culturally for us. I don't know that it's unique to us, but, but I will say it applies to us, where the idea of the miraculous is attached to this continuum that uh, is a trap. It, it, we end up pushed out onto one end or the other of a continuum. And, and what I want us to start out with is this idea that miracles are not just reserved for the monstrous. There are giant things that are miraculous, but not, not only are miracles giant things. And so um, where you're going in this church journey requires some miraculous intervention of God. I would say you've already had a measure of it to look at when you look at how God delivered the piece of property to you that he did for like a quarter of what, it's, what, what the asking price was, like an incredible miraculous intervention of God. But some people's lens on the miraculous is very skewed or screwed up, and I think some of the reason for that is tied to um, the culture that we live in and it being disconnected from the reality of Scripture. And so here's what I mean by that. Uh, in Scripture, in the Old Testament, we see all these stories of the miraculous. So you read the story of Moses parting, the, you know, the, the God parting the Red Sea for Moses. And we read about that, and Moses goes up, and, you know, he touches the water, and boom, the water parts. And we read that and go, what? And then we read a little further in the Bible, and we read about this moment where um, you know, Joshua is taking the promised land and they march around the city in Jericho and all these walls are up and they blow the horns and all the walls just crumble to the ground. And we read it like, what? And then we read this other story about Elijah and how he does this, he has, you know, performs all these things and has all these miracle moments and these prophet, you know, thing, journey that he's in, this extreme eccentric prophet. And then God takes him away up in this chariot of fire and we're like, What? And we read the rest of the Old Testament. We read some other miracle moments. And then we get to Jesus and we read the stories of Jesus. And we read about how Jesus, you know, after he's 30 and he kind of begins his ministry, he turns water into wine. And we're like, yes, I mean, what? <laughs> and then he heals this blind person. What? And the deaf person. By the time we get halfway through the Jesus miracles, we're kind of like, oh yeah, another blind person's healed. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. I know, Lazarus and now the little girl for Jairus. Like another, another dead person's raised. Like miracle, like all these what's in the Old Testament, a few what's with Jesus, and then it becomes like, oh, yeah, Jesus did stuff, and it's cool. And then Jesus dies. And the church continues, and we read a few stories in the rest of the New Testament about some of the miraculous things, particularly in the book of Acts, and we read about it. But we, then we look at our life and go, we're here. Like that was there and then, and this is now and here. And how does that look for me today? Jesus isn't here. I'm not Moses. What does this look like? And we end up buying into one end or the other of this continuum. I call it a trap between believing that either on one end, miracles are only massive, great, big things, right? Like my sister was diagnosed with breast cancer. She's been completely healed. No more breast cancer. Thank you, Jesus. It's awesome. That's a miracle. And um, a, a guy in our church who we prayed for and his leg grew out to match the length of his other leg. Like what? Big stuff, miracle. But then we, so we end up over here and because we're living in 2017, we look at those things and go, those things are big, massive, enormous, huge. I can't get my mind around it. And I'm just little old me, baby Christian person who's known Jesus for a few weeks, few months, few years. And your miracles are like, what? That's not me. And then we, or we live over on the other end of the continuum. The other end of the continuum is that every single good thing that ever happens is a miracle. Like I put chicken in the microwave, it didn't dry out. What? I, 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 I texted a girl, she texted me back. What? For some of you, that is a miracle. Anyway. So I'm just, I'm just, we so badly want God to do the miraculous that we trivialize his power and we call every good thing a miracle, which insults his supernatural intervention. Or we stand over here and go, only the great big things of of you know, cancer healing and dead people being raised and legs growing out, those are miracles and I would agree they are, but because they're so big and I'm not there and I can't be there and I'm not Jesus and I don't have divine authority and I don't have this power, then we, then we go, well, that's not for me. Like, and, and maybe that doesn't happen at all and it certainly doesn't happen around me. So we, we can end up never experiencing the power of God because it's only the gigantic things or never engaging the power of God because we think every good thing is God in a miraculous intervention. Both places are really, really dangerous. But everybody I've ever talked to wants to believe in a miracle when it touches or has to do with them personally. Like when I think about your situation, I may go, no, I really hope God does something great in that. But how deeply I engage the belief that God will or can is, has to do with how personal the thing is to me. So when I have conversations with people and we'll, we'll be talking, you know, um, and they'll tell me about some situation, I'll say, hey, do you want, you want to pray because that situation, I believe God can do something great. And when it's, you know, my, my wife or husband got diagnosed with something or my kid is far from God and I want him to come back to God or this relationship is messed up or my wife's and my marriage is so distant, we sleep in two different beds on two different floors in two different homes. I want God to do something huge. And I say, well, do you believe God? I don't know if he can, but gosh, I need it. I wanna believe it because it touches me personally. But when it's related to someone else or something else, my level of engagement is distant at best. So what I wanna do is I wanna walk you through the, the, not only the importance of and the power of, but also how to be a part of and see the miraculous happen and not live in a place where dried out chicken is a miracle 
and I can't engage the divine supernatural in intervention of God in a physical condition or a marital situation because it's too big and beyond me. So we're going to read John chapter 6. You ready? Everybody say, I'm ready. Okay, good. John chapter 6. Um, you're going to highlight a couple of verses or circle them, so get ready to do this. John chapter 6, verse 1 says, And after this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever we went, wherever he went. Now, we read this all the time, that Jesus goes throughout, wherever he goes, there's people that follow him, multitudes follow him, crowds follow him, everybody follows him. They crash through houses, they come in through ceilings, they overflow hillsides, they drown boats, like they just, crowds follow Jesus everywhere, and this is no different in John chapter six. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went, and then we get a because. Why did the crowds follow Jesus? Jesus was followed by crowds. They always followed him. And here's the reason. Because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. The reason that people followed Jesus is, and followed Jesus and the crowds gathered were because of the stories of the divine intervention of God in a variety of ways, any number of ways. We read about certain miracles, but some miracles are more enormous than others. And in this journey, as these miracles happened, great or small, people went, What? I gotta go follow that guy. And they would cry and then they'd just tell a story. Someone said, you won't believe this. Come with me. Come, come on, come on, come with me, come with me. And crowds would gather and follow Jesus everywhere he went. And so here's what I want you to understand. You need to write this down. People are drawn to the miraculous. People are drawn to it. It's unnerving, but everybody wants to see and believe in the miraculous. Everybody wants it. I don't know if you've seen this. This is totally free. Just uh, since TJ said I can talk all day, I'm gonna tell you this. Is um, I just got a story sent to me by one of our elders about um, people across the United States, and forget where you are on Trump, this is not political, this is a measure of spirituality, just listen. People across the United States are advocating for a um, massive uh, occult curse to be placed on Donald Trump. There's a calling for witchcraft, witches, and individuals to come together to place a curse on Donald Trump. Now, what they believe in is a spiritual miracle is gonna happen that's gonna change him, transform him, bind him, keep him from communicating, whatever it is. I don't want you to get tied up in the politics. I want you to hear me. Everybody wants to believe in the supernatural intervention. Everybody does. And there is a, a, a process, a power that draws them. The miraculous intervention of God is drawing. The supernatural manifestation is a drawing power. And when Jesus intervenes, crowds come around. They didn't, they didn't follow Jesus because the lights were good or because the preaching was cool or because the guitarist was great or any other reason. They followed him because when Jesus got involved and supernatural things beyond their comprehension happened, they followed him. And you need to understand that part of the reason that people want to come and will continue to come to Coastal is because they wanna see Jesus do what only Jesus can do. There are things you can do. We got an incredible worship team, got a great pastor that we play a part. But when Jesus shows up, crowds gather. That's how it works. So people are drawn to the miraculous. So let's continue our story. So Jesus, um, people um, followed him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs, he healed the sick. Number three, then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. And so pause there in verse four. So here's the story. Jesus was on one side of the lake, had crowds around him, did a bunch of stuff, got in a boat, went to the other side of the lake. 
And the crowd was back over there. Jesus needed a break or he needed rest or he needed to recoup or he needed a, I don't know, he needed a new Red Bull. I don't know. Other side of the lake, away from everybody. Give me a break. And while he's there sitting on the side of the mountain, Jesus sees the multitudes start to come around the lake and come across the lake. The armada is coming across. The people are coming around. Thousands of people coming around the lake. And Jesus sees them coming. Disciples are here. They're all resting. I can just see them laying on the side of the hill, just relaxing, trying to catch up and recuperate. And Jesus sees everybody coming. And he recognizes the multitude is about to arrive where he is yet again. And Jesus becomes acutely aware of a need that no one else is aware of yet. And this is the second thing you need to write down. Our needs arrive at Jesus before we ever do. He is acutely aware of the needs that we have. Our needs arrive at him before we ever arrive at him. Jesus saw the crowds coming and he looks at Philip beside him and he says this. Um, He turns to Philip in verse five and he says, where can we get bread to feed all these people? It says he was testing Philip for he already knew what he was going to do. And Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. And then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with this huge crowd? And Jesus said, tell everyone to sit down. So everyone sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Commentary suggests it was about 20 to 21,000 people with wives and kids. It says, and then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and then they distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. And after everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. And they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people uh, who had eaten from the loaves and fishes. And verse 14, when the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. And when Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. So the first thing is that people are drawn to the miraculous. The second thing that you need to write down is that our needs arrive at Jesus before we ever do. And there is no greater news than that. I need you to hear this. This can sound like religious kind of just this trite statement. Oh, God knows what you need before you tell him. Oh, Jesus already knows your needs before you tell him. And that can sound really trite, but I want you to think about the power of that. Let's just take your situation as a church. Right now, you have a piece of property in Parkland and you're raising $200,000 in two weeks to break ground and start the process of doing the site work. And then you're gonna need to outfit the building. You're gonna have to build the rest of the building before you can move into the building and real ministry can happen. And TJ knew about this need years ago before you ever got here. He knew about this, whether God had spoken it to him or he just understood that there will be a time when the church needs a base camp from which to do ministry, to do outreach. They need a place for outreach to happen. They need a larger gathering space, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So he knew about this. But right now, the church is in the middle of this need, which means that if the need is $200,000 in two weeks and 1.2 million over the next 12 months, then somehow, if Jesus knew the need before, it, before we arrived to tell him about it, then he knew two years ago that we were gonna need to raise this money, which means that two years before that, maybe, he was working out you getting a promotion and getting an opportunity to earn more money, which maybe meant that three years before that, he was getting you a job at the company you're at so that you could get the raise to earn the money to be able to be a part of this church, to fund the vision so that $200,000 could be raised and a building could be built so that Jim and Sally, who arrive in that church, 
church a year and a half from now can have someone help them navigate their marriage so they don't end in divorce. And Jesus knew that need, and this is the course to meet that need. If Jesus knows the need before we ever present it to him or arrive at him, then you've been a part of meeting someone's need and you didn't even know you were being used yet. There was a need that these people had that Philip and the disciples had no idea about, but Jesus saw it and said, before they get here, I know we're gonna need to be able to meet a need they don't even know they have. And he does something very unique. He doesn't turn to the group of disciples and gather them all up and say, hey, you know, stop singing Kumbaya, come here for a minute. He turns and he looks specifically at Philip, scripture says, and he says, Philip, we need food for these people. Where are we gonna get it? There's a need I see and I need you to play a part. And so the third thing you you need to write down is Jesus doesn't ask us by name for no reason. He always asks me, not we. And so there's a journey to meet a need. I'm not just talking about the need for coastal, although I very much believe that. And I believe that's why God stirred this, this story and this message was about this specific situation with coastal. But you actually have some specific issues and situations and needs in your world or, or the worlds of those you're attached to. And God may have asked you, his Holy Spirit may have nudged you personally to play a part in being a need meter, being a conduit for the miraculous. And you maybe, like Philip, have turned and looked at Jesus and said, whoa, 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 whoa. We could work for a month and whatever we would earn would never be enough. Why are you asking me? I don't have the answer to this thing. I can't play a part in this. This is bigger than me. Whatever I would do is inadequate anyway. But Jesus doesn't turn back to the rest of the disciples and go, well, we're getting rid of Philip. He's fired. What about you guys? He doesn't do that. He says, Philip, what are we gonna do about this? Philip says, well, I don't know. I I have no idea. It's bigger than me, God. And Simon Peter nearby says, hey, there's a boy over here who has some loaves and some fishes. Maybe that'll help. It's probably not enough, but maybe that'll help. What I want want you to see here as we get into the recipe for the miraculous is that people are drawn to it. Therefore, the conduit for helping people come to Jesus is ensuring that things beyond their capacity to understand are taking place all around us all the time. And that looks different for, for, for all of us. For some of you, the idea of someone coming to Jesus may seem like no big deal, but I'm telling you for a person who's, for a woman who knows Jesus and serves Jesus and her husband is far from God, when he bows his knee to Jesus, there is no greater miracle in the universe than that moment. And for somebody else, like my family, my sister out in Estes, when she came back from the doctor and they said, we don't know what to tell you, but there's no more cancer, my whole family wept over my sister experiencing the miracle of healing. Miracles may look a little bit different in your context, but the miraculous intervention of God draws people to God. Now, how do we get there? There are kind of four ingredients in this this recipe for the miraculous I want you to write down. Uh, The first one is this. Um, Primary ingredient in Jesus' recipe for a miracle. The primary ingredient is humanity. And um, what I hope that you will hear at the outset of this is that no matter where you are in your journey with Jesus, whether you are new to Coastal, you've been here for seven years, maybe you've helped plant this campus, whatever, but in your walk with Jesus, no miracle happens except by humanity saying yes to being used by God to bring it to pass. It just doesn't happen. Nobody, no miracle, you go and read through scripture, you go find one, there may be one, I just haven't found it, but go find one. Nobody is just walking along and suddenly their blindness is gone and there was no 
intervention by a human being to participate in, in prayer or being a conduit of the power of God. There isn't one. It is always begun by some individual, in this case, the disciples. Peter was scared of it. Simon, uh, excuse me, Philip was scared of it. Simon Peter said, I have a little bit. And then the beginnings of a miracle began. They finally came around to, all right, we'll play a part. It did not happen until the disciples played a part. Humanity begins the journey for the miraculous. So it could be that you've been standing on the sideline like a lot of people going, man, well, it's 2017. I don't see a lot of miraculous taking place. Maybe the reason that not a, a lot of miraculous stuff is happening is because you're standing on the sideline. Maybe the Holy Spirit has tried to speak and use you like Jesus tried to get Philip to say yes to begin with and someone else came along and said, hey, I'll say yes and I'll play a part with the little bit I have and then Philip kind of got on board. Maybe you stood on the sideline and said, I don't know if I can say yes to this. This is a big deal. It's freaking me out a little bit. I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how I'm gonna look if I engage this. I don't know if I can believe for the, for the massiveness of like Philip seeing 21,000 people fed. I, I don't know. And so as a human you stood on the sideline waiting for God to do something and say, God, when you do miracles, I'll step in. And God's saying, I can't do miracles until you do. What might that look like if we stopped saying, this is impossible, this is too big. We could work for a month and not have enough. And instead said, I don't know how in the world we're gonna do it, but let's go do it, Jesus. What if we started there? I, the primary ingredient in every miracle is humanity. The second thing is, uh, the second ingredient in this kind of Jesus miracle recipe is, is um, a little bit of enormity. And I, I want you to think about this for a minute. Enormity is very relative. So that word, something that's enormous, is enorm what is enormous to one isn't necessarily enormous to everyone. And so I'll, I'll just give you a quick example. So um, let's just take this group of people over on this side and let's just say that y'all have known Jesus forever. And so you've had a relationship with God forever. You've trusted God forever. You've studied the Bible forever. You're walking in all the things that God calls us to in scripture forever. And um, so, you know, your faith is built, so to speak. But this group over here, which includes TJ and, and, and uh, Shayla and all these people, is they don't know anything about Jesus. They don't know how to spell Jesus. They spell it G-E-C-U-S. That's the closest they can get to spelling his name right. And so they don't know anything. They're, they're baby Christians. They're barely saved. Or they're not even saved yet. They're just kind of checking it all out. They don't know anything. And so to them... They, they hear TJ teach on giving. Let's just use that as an example. And so um, TJ teaches them, here's what God's design is for stewardship. Here's how he funds his church and cares for his bride is through the tithe. And so they hear that and we're supposed to trust God with the first 10%. And they're like, wait a minute, 10%, you're freaking me out. I already spent 107% of everything I make anyway. So to trust God with the 10th is scary. I don't know what to do with that. You're insane. Besides, it's my money. Everybody over here that's known God forever and his disciples like, yeah, well, that's a no-brainer. God rescued me from hell and damnation. He can certainly handle my groceries. So I'm not worried about it. God's bigger and I'm trusting God. That's his plan. Besides that, there are a whole bunch of people who may never be reached if we don't fund the bride of Christ. And these people over here are going, wait a minute, I don't get that. To them, that thing is enormous. It takes a miraculous intervention of God for them to trust God with the first and still make it through the month. Whereas for these people, that's a no-brainer. It's enough. I've been doing that for 27 years, and God's not only never failed me, there are stories I can tell you of his miraculous provision. What's enormous to one is not enormous to all, and this is why this is a big deal. These disciples started walking with Jesus, well, let's say Philip, in John chapter 1 when he was called out of Galilee. And so Jesus is in Galilee and he calls Philip and Philip is known by some of these other disciples and they know Matthew and Peter and whatever. And so he calls him and the disciples start to walk with Jesus. And while they're walking with Jesus, they've never seen a miracle before. 
All they've done is, you know, be boneheads on a fishing boat or, you know, steal as a tax collector. They don't know anything. They just get called by Jesus. You're a really messed up, screwed up guy. You're perfect to follow me. Come on. And so they say yes. And as they walk with Jesus, and Jesus walks over here a little bit, and he heals somebody of blindness, and they go, what? And they walk a little further, and Jesus heals someone who turns water into wine, and they say yes. And they walk a little further, and he does this miracle. They discover that the miraculous is actually normal. And so pretty soon healing a blind guy for the third time isn't so amazing to them anymore. It's normal. But it's enormous to the person in the moment. And then he gets to the place where he needs to feed 21,000 people. And that's enormous to them. And what I wanna say to you is, part of the reason that the miraculous may not happen is not just because we stand on the sideline, but because we've never allowed the Holy Spirit to speak to us. We've never responded to his call to do something bigger than we can ask or imagine. We've disqualified its enormity because it's either so big I can't do it and I think about miracles through my capacity or it's so small, it's normal and like everything else, it's just, that's just the way it is. God needs us to not only say yes, but to recognize that the vision for the miraculous is his, not ours. What you think is a miracle may be different than the way God sees it. And what God calls you to will have to be something somewhat enormous to you, but it may not be enormous to someone else. Stop judging the enormity of the miracle that God's calling you to play a part in by whether or not someone else is doing their job. God wants to use you to do something great. And he was asking Peter, will you, or Philip, will you let me use you to do something enormous. Here's the third ingredient. The third ingredient is this, um, the, in, in Jesus' miracle recipe is that we have to use what's in front of me. I have to bring what I, is right in front of me and I overlook it all the time. So um, you know, God may ask me to do something. His Holy Spirit may whisper to me to do something and it may be miraculous for someone and to me, I'm saying I could never do that and I'm looking like Philip going, I don't have any bread, I don't have any loaves, I don't have any food, I don't have anything. We don't have anything, we have no money, we have no stuff, we have nothing. And Simon Peter says, wait a minute, here's what's right in front of us. Some fishes and loaves, this little kid has some food. I don't know if that'll do it, but maybe it'll work. And I just wanna say to you that whether it's your neighbor or your spouse or this church or this miracle offering, there is something that you can bring to the table and offer to be used toward the miraculous. And we trivialize what's small because we compare it against what everybody else may be able to do. They can give more hours than me, so my one hour of serving doesn't matter. They can give $50,000, so my $500 doesn't matter. If they could write all the checks, I don't have to do anything. We both disqualify and minimize what's right in front of us when all God has said is, I'm calling you to something enormous. I'm not asking you to do it. I'm asking you to cooperate with what you have and that let me do it. Will I bring what's in front of me? And I... I I think about this story and I, I think we miss how powerful the offering what's in front of us is. See, Philip and Simon Peter, they grab this boy and they bring him over and they say, Jesus, here's some fishes and loaves. And Jesus says, okay. And they say, what, you know, would this work? Can we help this? Jesus doesn't argue about it. There's no recording that Jesus goes, you idiots, five loaves and two fishes, you're stupid. There's no argument. There's no go find more, there's no one kid isn't enough, there's, a, there's nothing. It just says that they bring it to him and say, what about this? And scripture says, and Jesus blessed it, and then they went and distributed it. Now, I just want you to picture this for a minute. Jesus is standing here, Philip and Simon Peter come over, they bring this basket, and they say, Jesus, here's the stuff. And I can just picture Jesus looking at them and looking at the stuff going, okay. Hey, guys, come here. Come here, we're gonna pray with you. Come on. Hey, guys, come over here. Hey, stop, stop that, come here. 
and let's do this. And so they finally get over here and say, you stand over here, stop it, stand over here. And Jesus holds the stuff and he says, bless it. I don't know if he used his best you know, gospel voice. I don't know if he went on some long prayer. I don't know if he spoke in tongues. I don't know. I know that all it says is that Jesus blessed it and told them to distribute it. And when he did that, it doesn't say that all of a sudden he said, you know, amen, and then you know, bread just flowed out all over the mountainside. Fish slid down into people's laps. Like there's no, there's no recording of that. What it says is Jesus blessed it, and he said, okay, guys, go take it. And I just, put yourself there for a minute. I can just see Simon Peter or Philip holding this basket and they've got some fishes and loaves and Jesus says amen. And I, if, you've, if it was me, I would have had one eye open the whole time while he's praying. We're like watching, like, what's up? What are we gonna do here? Like, come on, G, like. More, more, more. And he says amen and there's no more. And I'm like, do I, like, do I go now? Are we done? Because... That's not enough. And I go over here and I'm looking back and Jesus is just, you know, like, yeah, 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 yeah. And I get over here and I give the first person, I'm like, hey, Jesus said take some food. So they take some food. And um, I go over to the next person and say, hey, Jesus said take some food. Here, have some food. They take some food. And I get to the fourth person, the ninth person, the 31st person. And I'm like, this looks exactly like how I started. Okay, what, Jesus said take some food. How many people would I have had to go to as Philip or Simon Peter or you or David before I went, holy crap. We're not going to run out of food. And what freaked me out in the first person and the third person and the 12th person, suddenly I'm going, now going to the 81th person and the 151th person. And I'm saying, take some food, have some food, it's all for you, have all you want. Like, I'm, like, I would probably have been like, all right, nobody's looking. Dump the basket out and then go to the next person and watch. <laughs> there it is. More bread. There it is. Look at that. Have some food. Food, it's for you. Passing another disciple while he's carrying stuff. You're walking by going, this is nuts, you know. <laughs> and food just keeps bubbling up in these baskets. I, I, you know, I have pictures about how it looked, right? Like Star Trek, transporter room. There's a new loaf. Like 21,000 people got fed. All because Philip said, I don't know. And Simon Peter said, here's what we have. And Jesus said, finally, if you'll say yes, you'll bring me what you have and you'll not get lost in the magnitude of what only I can do as long as I have you and what you have. I can take care of enormity. You just need to get involved and bring me what you have. That, and look what happened. The miraculous has nothing to do with your capacity. It has to do with your cooperation. It has nothing to do with how much you have. It has to do with using whatever you have. The miraculous is not tied to us, but it can never be done without us. So Jesus gathers up the food, gathers up the disciples. They all come together and go through the prayer. And it's in that moment, I think, that the disciples rest in that the power of this miracle is not in us, it's in Jesus. And the fourth ingredient is not working to bring the miraculous to happen. It's abiding in the one who has the power to do the miracle. You have a major undertaking in this church. 
And it will take the miraculous intervention of God. But God has already put his thumbprint on your journey as a church and said, you didn't think you would ever be able to have seven and a quarter, seven and a half acres in Parkland, but see, I can do it. If you'll bring me what you have, here's the money we have, God. I don't know how to do this. Here's the money we have. I, here's the space we need. Here you go, God. And he says, I want to build a place. Will you bring me what you have? Yeah, we'll bring you what you have. And God says, fine, boom. How about this? How about I give you seven and a quarter acres in the best spot in the whole world on a prime piece of real estate for a quarter of the money? And it just so happened to be the money you have. How about that? And suddenly the, the ability to believe for not just an offering, but for the rest of the journey and phase two and the next campus and it suddenly goes up and God wants to use you to bring it to pass because God doesn't do anything except through us. He just doesn't. I love the way the story ends. After this whole moment of surprises and high-fiving and dumping the baskets out and seeing everybody fed. Jesus tells the disciples, he says, now that we've done this um, and now that all these people have been fed, go and collect what's left over. We have met the physical needs of 21,000 people who didn't know how starving they were gonna be and probably didn't bring a picnic basket with them. And we've done this because God is gracious and saw their need before they even knew they had it. Now go pick up what's left. And so the disciples went around and they collected 12 baskets. Every disciple had a doggy bag at the end of the day. And they walked away and every one of them held a basket and saw loaves and fishes in their basket and looked down the row and thought, man, how is that? We started, like, what? And they move on to the next place. And at the very end of John chapter six, Jesus flips the script on them. He says, we have done this thing. We've delivered this physical sustenance to all of these people. The miraculous has taken place. This is a big deal. Can you believe what's happening? I can't imagine what they talked about where, as they were walking. Like, dude, that was the craziest thing I've ever done. Like, I can't imagine. And then Jesus does his thing. He flips it over and he says, that was amazing, but it's nothing compared to who I am. And this is what he says in John chapter six, verse 33. And he says, the true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every single day. And Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So with a basket full of bread in their hands, Jesus says, not only can I miraculously take care of the needs of humanity, but I can transform and take care of the needs of their eternity. Don't let them miss the importance of physical needs the importance of spiritual needs, the magnitude of who I am because they're lost in the moment. And here's what I think for you. I think the journey that Coastal is on is more than just to meet the physical needs of their community. It's to give away the good news and the gospel of Jesus. And in order for that to happen, you as a church community, this campus, this service has to get past the idea that it's someone else's job that someone down further in the row has more to offer or they need to say yes or I've been coming to Coastal for seven years and I've been tithing for seven years and you know all these new people that have showed up, it's their job now to pay for what we do because I've been paying the tab for a long time. That, or the new person saying, I've only been coming for a few months and those people that have been here, I, when they get the building built, I'll decide if I wanna stay. Listen, I'm just telling you, the Holy Spirit has spoken to you about the journey of the building, about the journey with your spouse, about the journey with the neighbor, about the journey with the addicted person, about the conduit of community that you are entrusted with. Not we, what about you? What about just you? And are you gonna move, am I gonna move beyond the place of saying, 
TJ's got this. Sally's got this. I'm going to enjoy this. I'm, I'm going to get for a while and say, God, I'm here. You've spoken to me. Here's what I have. Here's what I have. Use that. I think if you do, then the journey that Coastal's on has a trajectory that you can't imagine yet. I think there's a place that Coastal will arrive at because God is the multiplier. God is the miracle worker. But he needs someone to work with. And I think that's you.